We are going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, and we might look over at Isaiah 64, 4. Isaiah, uh, sorry, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 22. Let me give you a little uh, context of where we are. Over the last several weeks, as we've been going through 1 Peter verse by verse, um, for several weeks now, we have seen a theme that we as Christians are to submit to the authorities that God puts in our life, whether it's governing authorities or within a marriage, and he gave some different examples and scenarios. And ultimately, uh, we are to submit to Christ. And he is our ruling authority. He is our number one authority. Uh, We are to do what God desires and to obey him, even if that means that we have to disobey the governing authorities. um, That is the exception when God overrules the governing authorities, and so, or the different authorities that he has put in our life. And so we have been looking a lot at the, the responsibility and commandment that we have to obey in the midst of even persecution, that we are to submit to those in the places of authority that God has put in our life. And so with that said, uh, when we get to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22, there are going to be several different things that we look at here. And a couple of these are going to be some of the most difficult passages, verses to understand in all of this letter. In fact, uh, it, one of these is one of those places where you can grab six or seven different commentaries and each one of them is going to have a different explanation of that verse or that passage. Uh, I emailed some friends a few weeks ago as I was preparing for this sermon, knowing that it was coming up, and asked them what they thought about some different things. I I would send them some different interpretations and ask them uh, to read that and see what they thought, and and we all disagreed. And so I will tell you, uh, when we get to those places, what the different think, I guess, uh, options of what people think are, and as you read it, maybe you have your own understanding of it, but that understanding has to match up with the rest of Scripture, because there are plenty of places in Scripture where we might not be sure exactly what it is saying, but we can know exactly what it's not saying, because it's not going to go against what God's Word says in another place. And so with that said... Let's get into 1 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Right? We ended last week by talking about if you are living for Christ, then you are going to suffer for him. And we should, not to say that we should look forward to suffering and that it's fun or anything like that. Suffering is suffering, and no one enjoys it. It's suffering for a reason, and... Uh, and yet, when, when God is talking through Peter about suffering, he says that it's something that he can use for his glory. And that we will be blessed for the suffering that we go through for his sake. We won't be blessed for the suffering that we go through on, at our own hands because we made foolish decisions or sinful decisions. Um, but we will experience blessing for the suffering that we go through on behalf of Jesus. And so with that said, it transitions to saying that for Christ himself, for Christ also suffered 
once for sins. Now, Christ suffered in the way that we suffer throughout his whole life, right? He didn't even have a place to lay his head. If you read the Gospels, you will see many ways how, of how Jesus was persecuted, how people wanted him dead, how he gave everything he had in pursuit of uh, loving others and loving God and honoring God and, and letting people know about who he was. And so Christ suffered many more times than once, but he suffered once for sins. What, when was that occasion? That's right, on the cross. And Hebrews, if you've, if you've read Hebrews, the New Testament book, then you know that one of the main points of Hebrews, or the main point of Hebrews, is that Jesus' sacrifice was once and for all, all that was needed to make us right with God. Things used to be done in this way, but now they're done in this way. And so what I want us to do as we're looking at this, and as we're looking at the fact that Christ suffered for us, and he suffered once for sins, were they his sins for which he was suffering? No, he never sinned. If we keep reading, and we're going we're gonna to read a little bit and then come back to the beginning of this verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous, that's Jesus, for the unrighteous, that's us, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh but made alive in the spirit. Now let's go back to the beginning of that verse. For Christ also suffered once for sins. Something that I've been very convicted of lately is that it is extremely easy for us to take our eyes off of Jesus. It's extremely easy for us to take our eyes off of the cross and what he has done for us and how much he loves us and the lengths that he went through to save us, the lengths that he went through in order for us to have a relationship with God, the lengths that he went through that our suffering should only be temporary and limited here to this earth, and not to suffering for eternity. And it is easy for us to take our eyes off of Jesus and to take our eyes off of what he has done. And when we take our eyes off of him, there's no telling what we're putting our eyes on. For me, personally, a lot of times I put my eyes on myself and the suffering that I have to go through. And I, I think about how unjust it is or how unfair it is. Because y'all know life's supposed to be fair, right? It might not work out that way. But when I take my eyes off of Jesus, that's when I find myself falling into temptation that I was once standing firm against, not giving into the temptation to be angry or whatever the temptation is. And, and when I take my eyes off of Christ, when I take my eyes off of the cross, that's when I get in trouble. When I set my eyes on him, when I set my eyes on what he has done for me, then it's easier for me to, to live with my eyes focused on him, live wholeheartedly for him, and to honor him. And so, I think it's extremely important for us to look back to this moment, this moment when Christ suffered once for all sins. Does this say that Christ suffered once for most of your sins, but some of you sin too much to where your sin is too egregious and he can't save you. 
No. That would be very wordy. And no. no. He says, Christ also suffered once for sins. This is all sins that we have committed and will commit. This is all sins that throughout history had been committed and will be committed. They have the opportunity to be forgiven in Christ. Now, just because he died for sins and and gives us the ability through him to be saved doesn't mean that we all will be saved. We have to go to him in faith and rely on his grace to save us. We have to turn to him, and we have to ask him to save us. We have to put our belief in him. We have to confess with our mouths that he is Lord. And, and these aren't, it's not like, um, okay, now I have a head knowledge that Jesus is who he says he is, and so I have to do this step, and then this step, and then this step, and then this step, and then get baptized, and then I'm saved. And then in order to keep that salvation, I have to do this step and this step and this step and this step. That's not how it works. Christ suffered once for sins. He did everything necessary in order to save us, and all we have to do is to put our faith in him. And I know we say this a lot, but it is by grace that we have been saved through faith, according to Ephesians. And so it's important for us to remember how we are saved. Yes, we're saved from all sins, but how we are saved. We are saved by the work of Jesus on the cross. We are saved by what he did. We're not saved by our own actions. And it's important for us to remember these elementary truths. We are to put our eyes on him. And if we keep our eyes on him, then we're going to fall more in love with him. We're going to find ourselves being more grateful for what he has done for us. In, for Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. We need to remember our place before him. That without him, we are considered what? Unrighteous. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That not just some... Every single human who has ever lived, with the exception of Jesus Christ, has sinned. And so, the righteous Jesus died for the, and suffered for the unrighteous us. Why? That he might bring us to God. He did this. Not because he had to. He didn't have to. Love compelled him to. Mercy compelled him to. But he didn't have to. He did this for the glory of God and for our good. He did this because the Father deserves our worship. And by him doing this act, by him dying on the cross, it is an invitation for us to freely come to God through the Son to worship the Father and to thank Him and praise Him for all that He has done in our life, to become one with Him, to share His truth among the nations. He has given us this opportunity for salvation in His Son. And so when Jesus died on the cross, when He suffered 
once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. He, did, he made it possible for us to come into a relationship with God. Did you know that this morning? And, and maybe you knew that. Maybe you've heard this preached many, many, many times. I know uh, most of us in here grew up in the South, and a lot of us have been hearing the gospel since we were uh, in our cribs, uh, but not all of us. And so maybe this is the first time that you're really hearing this truth. And then sometimes we can hear a truth many, many times, but it doesn't become a reality. We don't understand it, and we don't grasp it, and we don't surrender to that truth until later in life. And so maybe you're here this morning, and you have always believed with your head that Jesus is God. But head knowledge doesn't save us. We know this because James says that even the demons believe and shudder. So head knowledge doesn't save us. Our faith in what Jesus has done, our faith in Jesus is what saves us. And if we truly put our faith in him, then a transformation occurs in our heart. A change occurs in our life. And I will say this. If you've said a prayer, God save me, I I want to follow you. And there was never a change. Then those could have been empty words. Because when God saves us, we see this every time in Scripture. Transformation occurs. It's not just gaining knowledge of how to get saved. It's not just saying a formula that we think, well, the Bible says I have to believe, so let me say that I believe. The Bible says that I need to confess, let me confess. The Bible says I need to do this, let me do this. Yes, the Bible says all those things, and we should do all those things, but if our salvation is true, then a transformation is going to take place. It might not happen in that moment as far as all of our sins stop and everything. We are saved in that moment, but there begins a a progress in our life, a process in our life uh, that Christ has sanctified us, set us apart, and he is making us more and more into his image. And all this salvation talk is going to make more sense as we continue reading this passage um, of why I'm focusing so much on it this morning. But he did that, Jesus did that in order to bring us to God. Being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. There was no moment where Jesus ceased to exist. He transitioned right from death of the flesh into life in the spirit. When they killed his body on the cross, and when he willingly went to the cross, put him, essentially allowed himself to be put on the cross, he said no one took his life from him. He gave it. He laid it down. And when he did that, and I'm sure evil thought they had won, I'm sure the Roman soldiers, when they saw him dead, thought that, that, well, that's that. Although one of them did say, surely this is the Son of God. Um, but they thought that that was it. His own disciples didn't know what was going on. They thought it was over. He was put into a tomb. He was dead in the flesh. But he was alive in the spirit. And 
So it's important for us to realize um, that Jesus never ceased to exist. Now, now we're going to get to the confusing part, okay? As if salvation isn't a little confusing, and I mean, think of all the people who claim to be saved for many, many years because they don't have a true understanding of what salvation is, and then they come to a realization that I was living all those years not in a relationship with God, not saved. Hey, Logan ain't bothering anybody. Anyway, I mean, besides making me jealous of that cool hat. But anyway, we've, we're coming to one of those sections that is a little confusing. So before we even read this, I want to give you some options of what I think this might mean. When we get to these following verses, I think that, that we do have a, a few options, and we, we don't have time. The main thing that I want us to remember is that, is that this has to fit into the context, the context of this passage, the context of Scripture as a whole. It has to fit into the context. If something, if there is a theory out there that does not align with the Bible, then that theory can't be right, correct? Because if, if we read something in the Bible and we're like, oh, that, that doesn't sound right, then we're probably right. The way we are understanding it is probably not right. Let's dig a little more. Let's look at the context. What is he really saying? Is there sarcasm being used or is this just an illustration or what's going on here? And, and so... In this case, what we're about to read, um, we know that the context of this passage is suffering, right? And so we're going to read some stuff about Noah and his time. So there are two main theories that I'll throw out there. One theory being that when Peter is about to say what he says, he is making a comparison, although he's not doing it um, in the most clearly communicated way. He's making a comparison between uh, Noah and the ark and the suffering that Noah and his family went through when they were persecuted, because we are talking about uh, perseverance here and persecution and things like that in this context. And there's a blessing if you persevere in that persecution. That's what we've been reading the last few weeks. And so um, that's one option, is that he's comparing... Uh, Jesus and the ark, and what the, sorry, Noah and the ark, and what Noah had to go through to Jesus also had to go through some stuff. And just as the ark was a route of salvation, right, for those people, and a route of judgment, by the way, um, the waters, the floods, uh, he's going to compare that to Jesus had to go through some stuff. He had to suffer. And there is a way of salvation that's way better than an ark, it's uh, eternal salvation through Christ, and water is going to play a different meaning in this scenario. And then the other way of interpreting this would be that uh, when Jesus died in the flesh, and, and immediately he was alive in the spirit, he, where was he for three days? While between his death and his resurrection, and what did he do? Don't let your brain explode thinking about this too much. But if, if he didn't cease to exist, then what was happening? What was going on? And so some people take that and say that, uh, well, this passage is telling us a little bit about what was going on. Uh, the Old Testament 
when you read the Old Testament, you will see that there are different words used for the afterlife. And when people in the old, under, the old, uh, under the law, under the Old Covenant, when they died, they went to one place. And when, when they w- were uh, following Jesus and had faith, like Abraham, they went to one place, paradise. Uh, then there was another place uh, where people who weren't following God went. And it was the afterlife, but it wasn't fully formed yet because Jesus hadn't come yet. Jesus hadn't offered the once and for all sacrifice that we read about earlier uh, to give them the ability to go into heaven. And so uh, at this point, Jesus, after his, between his death and his resurrection, he went back to, he went to the afterlife and preached to these people. And if they had already made up their mind that they didn't believe while they were here on earth, then he preached to them and basically said to the ones who were persecuting Noah, uh, you guys were wrong, and Noah, you were right. And Noah, you get the blessing of eternal life for your faith, and those of you who didn't believe have eternal punishment. Okay? So, there's a little bit more to it than that, uh, but those are the two basic beliefs. Uh, I can tell you where I am today and what I believe today, but that might be different tomorrow. Because even this morning, I messaged Larry and I said, I, I don't think I'm going to be at Sunday school because I have to study this a little more. <laughs> Just one more hour of trying to figure out what's going on here. As if the weeks and then the time last night and the time this morning, like I was going to figure it all out in an hour. But I at least wanted to be able to come to you with confidence and say, and here's what I believe. Uh, so, but I can't. All I can tell you is, here's what I believe, kind of, in this moment. And I might believe something different as soon as I say this and regret it. But, you know, that other one does sound like a good theory. All right, so here's, here's I think that the first is more likely of what this means. And here's why. Because the other is not really mentioned anywhere else in scripture. Um, the other, it does, it does fit the context, so I do think that it is a valid uh, theory of what's going on. I'm not saying that it doesn't make sense. It does make sense, and either could be right, and it either fit, if you read it the way that I was just saying, I think either can fit the, what the rest of scripture says, um, but We'll get to baptism, and I'll tell you why I think what I think. Anyway, all right, so going back, verse 19, Christ suffered once for sins, he did all those things, and then we get to verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared. All right, so let me stop there. So, if the first theory was right, that this is just Peter comparing Noah to Jesus, um, then there is this little weird thing, and it says, in which he went. Well, he never said he started talking about Noah. So there's a weird transition there, if I, what I think right now in this moment is right, uh, in which he went and proclaimed this to the spirits in prison. It, it was never a clean transition to Noah. He never said, I'm starting to talk about Noah here. Although uh, some people do say that the earliest manuscripts, that there are some 
proof that he says Noah or even Enoch. Um, that's not historically where we have stood. So, um, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, verse 19, and then verse 20, because they were formerly did not obey. Um, so this, using the past tense, formerly did not obey, does make it seem like it's something from the future going and looking back at the past. Uh, but I don't want us to spend way too much time looking at this because sometimes when we see these little pieces like this or Hebrews 6 where there's a confusing passage where we can spend hours and days trying to figure out what it means and all the time miss the more crucial points that are even right in the passage with it. Sometimes we can uh, look at the uh, minutia and ignore the beauty and the power and, and the truth of what's being said all around. And so uh, I do want us to look at this. I don't want to skip this. I will say that if I was not preaching verse by verse through First Peter, this would not have been a passage that I chose to preach uh, from the pulpit on my own just because of how unclear I personally am on this. And, and not just me, but this literally is one of those passages where I, since I didn't understand, I was trying to seek out different commentaries and commentators that I trust, friends, and nobody agrees on it, so it, that, no help. Uh, but anyway, because they formerly did not obey, one thing we know is, is that someone went, spoke to these people and they didn't listen. So either this was, is referring to Noah in his time and how he spoke to the people and they didn't listen, uh, or Jesus going and talking to them himself. Uh, so, and then a third thing that a lot of people believe is that um, the, the Spirit of God spoke through Noah, and so he spoke in that day, and that's why it's past tense. But anyway, uh, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. You know, Noah didn't build the, the ark for a few weeks. It took a long time. Noah warned the people for a long time, and they didn't listen. They, and he, he suffered for a long time. In which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. And so in this case, water brought life, right? Now, baptism, verse 21, which corresponds to this, now saves you. And here's another issue, and we'll talk about that in just a moment, but let's read this and clear up the first issue first. Um, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Okay, so tying up the Noah thing, the ark and the water was a new beginning. When, when the earth flooded, there was a new beginning. And those who put their faith in God, he used the ark to bring them to safety, and he used the water to bring death to everyone else. And one day, just as those who died in the flood, we will all die. Either we die or Jesus returns, 
and we have to face eternity at that point. So either way, it's the same conclusion. And so, um, what we have to transition to now is what it's saying here about baptism. And I believe, as we've talked about many times, and we've looked at many passages throughout Scripture, that this is not saying that baptism in and of itself literally saves us, because then it would be a work. And how many verses have we read about there not being any work that must be done except faith, right? There was one time when people asked God what they must do to inherit eternal life. What What work must we do to inherit this eternal life, this bread of life? And he said, the work that you must do is believe. And so it's, it's just faith. There is no work. And with that said, let's go to verse 21. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. Now, does a good conscience save you? What this is saying is, in this, a lot of people will say that, well, here's what this means, and they look to other verses, which is fine, to prove their point about what this verse means. But I believe that even in this verse, it, in the fullness of it, in the full context of what it's saying, it, it's, it's not even saying that baptism alone saves you, that it's what baptism, that repre- what baptism represents that saves you. Uh, and let's look at this carefully. Baptism, which corresponds to this, the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body. So it's not like if, if you lined up and got into the baptistry, every single person in here, and I dunked every one of you. I'm baptized, every one of you. If you didn't have faith in your heart, all I'm doing is giving you a bath. Some of you might need that, but that's all I'm doing. It's just removing dirt from the body, depending on how much we clean the baptistry. And so we have to make sure that we understand that baptism in and of itself doesn't save us. It's just, that it's just what being put in water is just the removal of dirt from the body. But, as in a, so it's not as a removal from dirt of the body. That's not how it saves you but as an appeal to God for a good conscience. But even that, an appeal to God for a good conscience, there needs to be more. Listen, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Our new life isn't given to us through baptism. Our new life is given to us through what? Through Christ. I should have said through whom? Through Christ. By faith, in the power of the resurrection of Jesus, the same way that he was able to go from being in a tomb in a lifeless human body to life, in the same way, one day we will all face God and we will not have our bodies, we will have new bodies if things go well for us. We will not have our bodies. We will have to face God and we will have to come to him and say, 
why we deserve to be in heaven? And the answer for all of us should be we don't deserve it, but through Christ. But through what he has done on the cross. Not, you can't say, I walked an aisle. You can't say, I prayed a prayer. You can't say, I was baptized. Now, all of those might have been legitimate experiences, and you might have been saved when you put your faith in Christ in the moment when you walked an aisle. But if you don't put your faith in Christ, then walking the aisle doesn't save you. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, then baptism isn't doing you any good. Baptism is just an outward expression to tell everybody something has changed. Something dramatic has changed in my life. I have put my faith in him. And we, we need to remember to read this through the eyes of the reader to whom Peter was writing. Remember that for them, if they got baptized, they were publicly professing, I am following Jesus, which meant, which is the same thing we do, but for them it might have meant something different. Because for them that meant that persecution was coming. For them that meant that if they were identifying as a Christian, they were about to have a hard experience from other religious leaders or from the the ruling authorities, the governing authorities, the Roman Empire in this case. And so we need to remember that these people, their baptism was a statement of faith just as powerful as Noah building the ark. Because just as it could have cost Noah his credibility, his life, the same could be said for these Christians who have put their faith in Jesus and are now being baptized. But as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our last verse, verse 22, who, okay, so he suffered, the who being Jesus, he suffered through persecution, he persevered, and what's the promise? If we persevere through persecution and trials that are not brought on by ourselves, but are the result of of us living for God, the promise is blessing. So what was the blessing that Christ received for his faithfulness? The righteous for the unrighteous. His willingness to pay the ultimate price. Verse 22, who has gone into heaven and it and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. God, I mean, Peter just like flips it on its head. We're to be subject to the governing authorities. But what can God do through our submission and obedience? Well, what did he do for Christ? He gave him the name that is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Right? Through the obedience of Christ, God brought the ultimate blessing. Through him submitting, even in the midst of persecution, God brought him the ultimate blessing. God brought us the ultimate blessing. Salvation through Christ. And he is our example. And this is why we should keep our eyes on him. Because when we want to retaliate, toward people who have treated us poorly, 
When we want to gossip because someone has hurt our feelings or done something terrible to us, when we want to lose hope when we've lost a loved one or gone through something terrible, when we want to lose hope because our sickness is just enduring, we put our eyes on Jesus. We put our eyes on Noah. We put our eyes on these men and these women throughout Scripture who submitted themselves to God ultimately and at, at some points even had to submit themselves to ruling authorities who were not good people, who persecuted them, who put them through all sorts of suffering. But what is the reward? If we can endure now, if we can trust now, if we can have faith and believe in him now, what is the eternal reward? And how does that compare to the temporary suffering that we have to experience here? Most scholars believe that by the time uh, that Jesus did not live to be my age. Most scholars believe that Jesus died in his mid-30s, early to mid-30s. And so... Temporary suffering, even of a short life, led to eternal blessing. So much so that because of his obedience, because of who he was, all of existence bows at his name. We will one day. All of existence submits and is subjected to his authority now. And in the same way, the suffering that you're going through, God sees it. He knows. He understands. And while we look at the pain, and while we look at what we've lost, and we look at the suffering, and that makes sense, God knows the blessing that is coming. God knows the victory that is coming. God knows the reward. And it's like when Paul got saved, and he is later talking about all that he gave up in becoming a Christian. Because, you know, he was like the lead, one of the Jewish leaders of the day. He was the man. He had this going for him. In Philippians chapter 3, he lists some of these things, and this going for him, and this going for him, and this going for him. But he counted it all. He lost it all when he started following Jesus, but he counted everything that he lost as garbage compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus is Lord. What he gave up could not compare to what he gained. And if we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, this is where we started and this is where we're closing. If we don't keep our eyes on Jesus, then all we can look at is what it is costing us. And we forget what we will gain and what we've already gained through salvation and what we will gain through the blessings that are promised to those who are faithful. And so, where are you this morning? Has a true transformation of the heart taken place in your life? 
Have you placed your faith in Jesus? Do you have a relationship with him? If you don't, then you can put your faith in him this morning. But don't just walk an aisle. Don't just say a prayer. Have faith. Ask him to save you. Cry out to him. And, it, and it, only if you mean it. Only if you're asking him to save you and you're ready for him to become your Lord. For him to become not just your Savior and save you from your sin, but he's going to become your Lord and you're going to have to submit to him. You're going to have to obey him. Are you ready for that? Are you ready for that commitment, for that relationship? Because it's not just a moment in life. It is a relationship for eternity. So that we could be made right with God is why he did this, right? So we could have a relationship with God again. And so maybe you're there. Or maybe you're in here this morning and, and you've taken your eyes off of Jesus. And it's not that you don't love him. It's not that you don't want to honor him. But you've gone through something and that's what your focus has been on. Your focus has been on the suffering rather than the Savior. And this morning, you can commit to God. You know what? Maybe you're not even in a place where you can commit. Maybe all you can do is get on your knees and cry out to him and just say, help me. Help my focus to be on you. Help my eyes to be on you. Or maybe you need to make a commitment. that God, I'm going to keep my eyes on you. I know that they've been straying lately. I'm going to keep my eyes on you. I want to live for you. I want to do right. I want to serve you with all my heart. Or maybe you just need to come to him and say, I'm tired. I'm persevering. But I'm tired. I'm keeping my faith. I'm keeping my eyes on you, but I'm exhausted. I don't know how much longer I can do this. You can come to God with words like that. You can be honest with him. He will embrace you. He, he will rebuke you. He will do whatever he needs to do with you. And then finally, I want to say thank you to those in this room who are faithful servants of God, who love him, who have endured suffering, who have endured pain, who have lost loved ones, who have battled illnesses, who have been persecuted for speaking the name of Jesus, who have lost friends because of their love for Jesus, who have gone through all sorts of trials and suffering. Thank you for your faithfulness and your example. And I just pray that you would continue to remain faithful, even in the midst of persecution and hardship. Look how it worked out for Noah, and look how it worked out for Jesus. Let's remain faithful. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. And I just pray that during this time you would uh, help us to respond to you in whatever way you're leading. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.